everybody, it's Jack. Uh, not going to make you wait too long for the podcast to begin. We are talking with Ross Benish today, kid from Brainerd, Nebraska. Uh, that's done a whole lot of writing and publications you've probably read. Uh, now out in the big city in New York City. So we'll talk to him. Uh, one note. Uh, because I'm a huge idiot, I mispronounce his name throughout most of the interview. It is Benish, not Benis. And by the end of the interview, you'll hear me realize that. Other than that, it's a great interview. Ross is a great guy, and so I think you're going to enjoy this. So here we go. Welcome another episode of the Jack Mitchell Podcast. We are in double digits now in terms of episodes and all over the place. All over the place. Thanks for all the feedback we got last week. On Malachi Coleman, and this week we are going in a different direction. I'm very excited about our next guest. I had a chance to to talk to him on the radio, um, and and as you guys know, I've talked a lot about this podcast. How I've wanted to um, get a chance just to like longer form interviews, and this is one of them. I think that this podcast was was really made for. So uh, I, I, I my my only real connection with our guest Ross Bennis is is kind of a little bit of interaction on on social media and and some emailing back and forth and um and doing that one radio interview uh about one of his books and so uh, I'm excited to do this he is boy he he's an author he's done a lot of writing too for a whole bunch of outlets that I know you're familiar with Deadspin Rolling Stone New York Magazine 538 Slate Salon uh, Vice, I'm probably leaving up Maxim. Man, that brings me back to the early 2000s. Um, <laughs> all, all, all over the place. He's uh, also an analyst at eMarketer, where he writes in-depth reports for subscribers. Uh, does does a lot of media, does a lot of podcasts. But he's a Nebraska guy at heart. At heart. Now he's in the big city, uh, but lots of writing on on politics, uh, on on culture, on. Uh, on sex, on, I mean, you name it, we have everywhere to go, marketing. And so welcome to the podcast, Ross Bennis. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, Jack. Good to be here. Yeah, awesome. So, like, let's let's get the Nebraska roots thing, like, let's get the explainer on the Nebraska roots thing. David City, right? Is that what Well, was? I was born in David City. Yeah. But I'm from Brainerd, which is even smaller. Yeah. Brainerd has no hospital, so... I had to go to David City to, to come out of my mother. She's big city. So you were ready for the transition to the big city later down in your life. It's like a microcosm. Brainerd to David City equals Nebraska to New York City, I think, in a smaller <laughs> fashion. <right>? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite there, but I see where you're going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm from Brainerd. Lived there for, uh, you know, first 19 years of my life. And then I went to UNL. It's there for five years. And then I moved to Detroit and, and moved to New York City, but I'm still always coming back to nebraska i was just there two weeks ago for my nebraska wedding i got married three times to the same woman and uh <laughs> last one we did in dwight nebraska so what was there what was there a new york one and an island one and a dwight nebraska one or uh, how did that the work? island one would have been cool there was two new york ones one was a uh just like a civil ceremony to to appease our parents and legally sanction the thing and then there was a church thing here in new york and then coming back to small town Nebraska, but uh, I brought all my in-laws over. They, they stayed in Lincoln. They loved it. Really? That's good. Really? Where's yeah, she, I had like eight guests with me. Where's your? Where's They're your all from, from uh, Long Island, New York. Oh my gosh! Culture. Actually, most of them are from the Philippines, and uh, still, she's culture. first generation. Yeah, I mean that's even more of a culture shock. <laughs> that's cool. Okay, so all right, but you, tell me about like I think this would be a good basis for what we talk about. 
down the road. Like, tell me just about your childhood, your parents uh, growing up, and and how that kind of shaped you into who you are today. Well, childhood is pretty standard for a lot of small town kids. You know, I kind of had latitude to do whatever. You know, no one locks their doors. I could go to the swimming pool for like eight hours, and no one knew where I was. I, you know, I didn't have a cell phone until. Junior year of high school, I shared one with my mom. I got my own cell phone when I went to college. Uh, you know, it was a pretty great place to just run and be free. I played three sports for, for much of my life, baseball, basketball, and football, pretty common thing, small towns. My, my parents are, um, you know, more conservative than I am and, uh, you know, very Catholic, a lot of time spent in the church and with, with church activities. Uh, that was, you know, a really big part of how I view things now, even though I feel uh, ambivalent about the faith. And uh, they're, um, you know, just kind of typical small town Nebraska blue collar people. My dad's a plumber. My mom's worked a bunch of random jobs. They uh, didn't go to college, but they love their public school. They love their community. We all we all went to the same school two blocks from our house for like, you know, 13 years, K through 12, same building, all four of us. Me and my siblings. Mm-hmm. Kind of a way of life that um, people where I live now uh, have no familiarity with. Right, right. So c- going to college, what did you what did you set out to do when you went to UNL? Well, I had no idea what the hell I was doing with my life. Um, I knew I was interested in social science. I ended up triple majoring at UNL. Um, I liked UNL because it was affordable. And I got some good grants and uh, scholarship deals. And I was always a big Husker fan. And my brother went there. So I just kind of, I didn't really think about going out of state. I didn't think about going to a private school. If I went somewhere else, it would have just been UNO. Like I wouldn't have done anything too crazy. It's probably UNL, UNO, maybe UNK or, or Wesleyan. Although I didn't really want to go to private school. Um, if I played in a band at, at UNL, um, that was more towards the end. I used to do some some comedy stuff and some really offensive cock rock. Um, or maybe you can't say that on your show. It's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. It's good. It's, it's a podcast. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a band and, um, I would hang out with people who were as obnoxious as I was. And we blow up televisions in people's basements and, uh, just do all sorts of wild I mean, stuff. Wait, were you just doing house parties? Or were you doing like knickerbockers and that kind of thing? I, I did play knickerbockers. I would, okay. I would play anywhere that they would let me. I, I played on campus once, but got kicked off, um, by a security guard because of a noise disturbance. Cause we plugged in the amplifier into the like outlet where the, the lights are in front of the union. So it was really disturbing. Um, I played outdoors on the streets in front of, uh, like the bourbon. Um, I've, I've opened up for the, crossroads christian project once in omaha and that did not go well uh i once uh stripped at cultiva coffee shop at like 3 p.m on a saturday for a show uh you know just any, anywhere like it could wait, be wait, a wait, house what do you mean stripped well i i kept on I, I i kept on um a pair of women's underwear but i got everything of else off. right of course okay yeah no 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 genitalia showing but like you know most no of the clothes underwear. coming off as okay yeah so typical cultiva behavior i didn't realize okay got it yeah people are just there getting their lattes mid-afternoon and you know i play an acoustic set that turns into an electronica set that uh turns into me uh rubbing lotion on okay. my face and on my body and okay just a second <laughs> just a second ross how do we get the the first half of this podcast so far? We've got 
<laughs> a guy who grows up in brain the Brainerd area. Uh, parents are, are Catholic, fairly religious, going to school, community guy. And a few years later, you're rubbing lotion on yourself in women's underwear. Oh, so to be fair, the middle. Uh, so I, I probably skipped over some things. I've, I've always, um, I don't know what you would call it. I, I like kitschy entertainment. And when I was, even when I was in high school and I was playing sports and stuff, I would make home movies with my friends and make like dirty music that I would sell to people. So I would, I made a bunch of uh, CDs and DVDs and I would, I had merch too. I, I made some shirts and some stocking hats and I would sell them to kids in like David City and Shelby and, and Brainerd, like, you know, like 10 bucks for a shirt, five bucks for a CD, $12 for the pair. You know, if you, if you bought it like in Walmart bulk and, uh, I was just always like doing things that I, I felt were creative. I always tried to do something that if I had it in my mind, even if it was ridiculous, I would try to make it exist as a product, whether that was my band, a stand-up comedy thing, these DVDs. And then eventually it became a little more professionalized when I started do, doing books out of yeah. college. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm sure we'll mention it, but um, I want to start talking about what you write about in Rural Rebellion um, and then... Uh, the the sex weirdopedia turned on and and uh, some of Ross's books. Um, but just get me through the rest of your journey then to where you are now from college to kind of and I know there's a lot. Yeah. But give me kind of a quick summary. Well, in college, I, I thought I'd probably just stay in Nebraska because that's what all my family has done. I'm the only one who's um, doesn't live there, who doesn't live close to home. But um, I was dating a girl at UNL who was uh, also from Nebraska, and we went through this uh, just god-awful breakup at the end, and uh, that um, set me on the path where I am today, where I I didn't feel like I wanted to do the things I used to want to do. I, I didn't want to go to grad school anymore. I, um, I didn't want to have a family immediately in my uh, mid-20s like all of my friends did. I wanted to kind of go out and explore things. One of the things I wanted to do was write a book. So after that breakup, I started working on this book, which eventually became The Sex Effect. And I was just shipping it out to a bunch of agents. Uh, this is when I was a senior at UNL, getting tons of rejections because I'm a nobody who's never done anything. And eventually I got an agent who was interested, but said she would only sign me if I started publishing in like respectable news outlets. So then like two weeks before graduation, I applied for some journalism internships, even though that was the one of the three majors I didn't do any pursuing of. Like I just took the classes. I never worked for the DN. I never wrote for anyone. Um, and I got an internship at Crane's Detroit Business just because I was an economics major. So I would be able to understand business despite not having the journalism background. And then I used that to get the Esquire magazine internship. And that's what brought me to New York City, where they unfortunately learned that I wasn't dressed very well. And they gave me a Devil Wears Prada style makeover. <laughs> Really? They yeah, there's you, a makeover. They there's an article about it. They put you in the custom suit and everything like this. I wish it was custom, but it was the article was like, "This is how you, oh, this is how you go from looking terrible to looking good on a budget." So it was like Men's Express, you know. <laughs> but and they like went in and like went to this fancy barber who said I looked like Mo from Three Stooges and. Uh, they, uh, you know, gave me what this a cliche, suit. Ross. They bring in, they bring in the hick from Nebraska. And yeah, we're gonna New Yorkify him. Yeah, and I gotta say, it didn't really stick much because I'm still wearing uh, basketball shorts right now that I got from a bodega and a free T-shirt I got from a advertising conference. So I did not, but I did not stay as man at its best, despite how much hair product they gave me. 
but it was good for my career because that helped me get the it might might have been bad for my shame if I had any, but it was good for my career because I um got that the Esquire internship. But yeah. to go from where I was in Lincoln to here in New York, I, I would say it started with that that breakup. Cause then I'm not going to become the family man at that age. I'm not going to grad school. I'm going to go do my own thing, get that lit agent's attention. Well, then I'm consumed with producing this book to produce the book. I need the magazine clips. I go to Detroit. I go to New York city, even though I've never been to those places. I just moved there. Once they give me the offer. Wait, When you moved to New York city, that was the first time you had been there. And same with Detroit. I'd never been to either city before I moved there. I was just, that was the place where someone gave me a job. So I said, Oh, what the hell I'll go. I'm not doing anything. Uh, what was uh, how how did you acclimate to big city life? Even well, at the very beginning, I, I got a uh, a smartphone for the first time. I was still using a phone that had no internet connection, uh, even when I was in Detroit. But I I thought I'm going to get lost using public transportation. It'd be good to have the internet in my pocket, so that helped me acclimate. Uh, some parts are really difficult though, because I um, don't come from a moneyed. Uh, family like so many other writers who moved to new york do so i was just living terribly um you know with legal li- living in like in illegal bedrooms that weren't actually bedrooms um living in places where the roommates would decide to make some money we're gonna airbnb our room to strangers and sleep in the living room uh one time there was a hidden roommate that showed up about 12 days after i, I moved in so I, I ended up having um i think 17 different roommates in my first four and a half years there um, and that was the, the toughest part is just, you know, you're paying what I thought was good money, but it was cheap by New York standards and you're just living terribly. You know, you don't have AC, you don't have great heating, you have mice, terrible people that you're living with who are strangers. And I, it got better over time as I, um, started to meet people and can live with friends and then eventually moved in with my wife. But, uh, the first few years were pretty miserable. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Well, like, th- that's what I wondered about your mindset. Was it like, okay, this is a necessary evil to do what I want to do, or I'm going to get out of here at some point because well, it sucks so much, or or w- what was your mindset then? It, w- it was viewed as a necessary evil, and I also did get out briefly. There was two times in my first, like, two and a half years here where uh, I, I was af- it was like after um, I did the Esquire thing, and then I worked for Deadspin, and it was all on, like, contract basis. So I wasn't getting full-time benefits you you just get these stipends with these things and so i would travel around because they i wasn't really uh someone who was expected to be in the office all the time and um i would quit living where i'm at it was always month to month because i was living in such shady places i'd put my stuff under people's beds um all my possessions could fit in one cab very easily and um i would go for like three months and i'd come back to Omaha and Lincoln. I'd stay with my brother or some of my friends. I, I traveled to California. I went back to Michigan. Uh, I went to saw some friends in Milwaukee. So that happened two different times where I was like, I'm done with New York. I'm going to go elsewhere for like three months, just not pay rent and like get my friend's stuff as I mooch off of them and uh, live that way. And um, 
after I came back the second time and I had the book deal, I uh, met uh, Rachel, who became my wife, who I live with now, and my life became more stable then. But if I didn't meet her and I would have stayed another, let's say, six months and found it still miserable, I probably would have just left for good that time. I don't think I, the third time I would have came back. I I think I mean I think people are familiar with a lot of the outlets that you've had pieces in, but Deadspin is particularly interesting I, just because I think it was so kind of culturally relevant to people of a certain generation and levels of a certain interest, and you know it was it was sports, it was kind of politics, it was what did they what did they want you to do specifically when they had you on that contract basis. It's really sad what Deadspin, what it's become, because if someone isn't familiar with its history and you go there now, you're going to see a terrible I even, website. I don't even, I have no idea what they're Yeah, doing it sucks now. now. And it's not even the same, it's not the, not the same writers. So Deadspin, um, the way I got that job was when I was with Esquire, I would email editors at publications that I liked. And Deadspin was right at the top. I love that. I mean, I was, you know, a guy right out of college who was really into sports. It was kind of aimed at people like me. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, I got in right, got into it right after college. I mean, early days of it. So you know, um, when when uh, Will Leach was there, Will Leach, Drew McGarry, that kind of stuff. In the you know probably two thousand five ish or so is when I started reading it. Yeah, well, um, I emailed the editor in chief that you know I'm this guy who writes for Esquire right now, and I'm looking for a job, and I have this book coming out, and he agreed to. Uh, meet me for drinks and we got along very well. And that's when I got that fellowship there. So it wasn't quite a full-time job, but it was better paid than an internship. And what they wanted me to do um, and what I sold them on was statistical analysis. So I did like 538 type stuff for Deadspin. Uh, the most popular sports article I had for them was um, it was a ranking of all like 120 college football programs on how they performed compared to their recruit rankings. So I would take like every team's, you know, average rivals uh, ranking for like the last five years and compare it to like their Massey index score, which ranks like all, you know, 120 college footballs. And you could see stuff like, um, you know, Alabama gets like on average, like the fourth ranked recruiting class on an average, they're like the third ranked team in the country for the last 10 years. Um, Nebraska at the time was just plenty era. We were like, kind of, we kind of played right at our level. Like we were recruiting like in the lower twenties and we we played like in the lower twenties. Uh, K State would always get like recruits that were like in the fifties, but they would play like they were like a bit, you know almost a top twenty team, and that uh, that's the sort of thing I would do for them. It was all like economics and statistics, uh, a lot of about college football, but but other sports. Uh, Five thirty eight at the time was kind of new, and and people were trying to imitate it. Uh, that deadspin experiment didn't last though, so I was there for eight months, and then they. Uh, terminated the contract i'd still occasionally freelance for them after that but they didn't do as many um full-time statistics stories but what's cool is that that was while i was brought there i would pitch them all sorts of crazy stuff like you know guitar solos to have sex to and stuff about orange high c and whatever else i was interested in you had the freedom to do that that's cool yeah because you did a wide variety of stuff i mean I, I read a bunch of it i probably read stuff back then that i didn't you know i don't didn't know that you wrote but or part of the statistical analysis. By the way, were you there during the the Polini audio thing when they broke that? I, I was um, trying to think if I was. I think I had was still part of the fellowship, but it was one of my times when I was like living outside in New York. Like I think I was in 
Omaha and they were asking me to verify, like, just like informally. But th- that was around that same time. It was like 2014. Yeah. yeah. The second Polini tape, though, uh, I was gone for. Yeah. No, I was wondering about the first one. Yeah, the first one, that would have been like right at the end. And it would have been like me not even living in New York, still writing for them. But like, you know, it was after the UCLA game uh, that year is the week after the UCLA game in Lincoln that I remember. So what, 13, I think it's right. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Someday I'll do another podcast just on that. But nonetheless, we can (laughs) we move like so the, the, the you know, when we very first touched base and talked, it was kind of about this politics thing. Um and and it's really interesting conversation because I've thought about a lot of the things I think that that you've wrote about in some of your pieces and in rural rebellion as well. And sometimes I'll look back. See, I've been in Nebraska since 1986, so basically all of my formative life <clears throat> was in Lincoln. And like, I, and now I've been working in in news and talk, mostly screwing around radio since 2006. But I cover politics, and sometimes I'll think back and I'll be like. Was Ben Nelson our governor just a few years ago? Yeah. Like, was was Bob Carey uh, making a Democratic presidential run based on his political career in Nebraska? And I have to, like, stop and think, like, how in the heck did that happen? Because it seems so far-fetched now, so impossible now, but we're not talking, like, the 1950s. That's like 20 years ago. Yeah. It was like, I mean, I just... Well, Nelson, yeah, not even 20 years ago no, when he was a senator. Even, he was a senator while I was still doing my job. Yeah. Here yeah, he's a senator, I mean, Obamacare. So. Oh, it's, it's, it's unthinkable. Yeah. We, yeah. So I once got a clip, not to brag, I once got a clip on the NBC Nightly News when they had the whole Cornhusker kickback thing. We had Nelson yeah. on our show after that and asked him some questions about that. And it's the, uh, the most publicity I've ever gotten, I think, from, from my show. But I'm curious, this is something you've written about, you've thought about, a lot like especially with your you know experience where you grew up on because i think that drives a lot of it how do you see what happened how did it happen how did it change so much in just a short period of time well it's really the nationalization of of politics and it's not just nebraska that whole region like iowa used to have more democrats the dakotas had democrats they no longer do like we're kind of going through the same thing that all those states in the middle of the country do where they used to have Democrats who could uh, be um, a little more individualistic. They wouldn't have to conform to whatever the National Party was doing because they would be a little more conservative. They had to run to win in South Dakota. They had to run to win mm-hmm. in Nebraska. And voters back then would still vote more for the candidate than, than just the party. You had more people, um, Democrats voting for Republicans and, and vice versa. Like when Bob Kerry won, he got a lot of Republican voters. Those things don't happen. And not just in Nebraska. They don't happen anywhere. The candidates run on national issues. They kind of all look the same, whether it's a, a Democrat or a Republican in Maine or a Democrat and Republican in Nebraska. They, they, they kind of run on the same policies. And the voters have become more glued in onto their party and much less likely to glom on to the others. And, uh, you know, a lot of it happened in the mid-90s with, like, Newt Gingrich and, and nationalization that way, the news sources, too. Um, I, I just kind of see it as an inverse of, there's that, um, you know, Tip O'Neill comment where like all politics is local. I, I would say not in our era. All politics is national. You have people winning school board races running on national issues. Yeah. And that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And that's hurt Democrats in the middle of the country because yeah. that's where Republicans have become so dominant. You got city councils passing resolutions on 
things that are in the national media. Yeah, it's 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 that same thing. So so you would say Nebraska isn't necessarily uniquely positioned in having that happen. You know, you mentioned Iowa, South Dakota. It's it's more of a it's more of a national thing, I guess, with several yeah. states that are kind of in that unique position. And the the party, the national parties became um, so twisted by uh, population density, like. Like Democrats weren't so focused on on just like a city constituent back then. Now the national party at least is, and Republicans had a bigger sway in cities than they do now. Now they're really like urban rural. You know, some cities very rare though for a city of over five hundred thousand to lean Republican now. Yeah, you had a, you, like you had a quote in one of your pieces. I'm I'm looking at it now. Uh, it was a review of uh, of a book. Uh, prospect co-founder Paul Starr wrote that population density now predicts partisanship. You think that's true? I do think that's true. It's not going to be in every case. I'm sure there'll be some commenter who listens to this radio show and be like, "I live in a small town and I'm super liberal," or "I live in Omaha and I'm you know far right." Obviously, except, yeah. But the correlation is very strong, very strong, and it's gotten stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at look at Nebraska. Look at look at I mean, look at the you got blue dots in Lincoln and Omaha when you look at the 2020 Uh election. Um, And then for the most part, um, it's it's not like that anywhere else. But the odd thing. So I'm covering right now, Ross, the potential of a few ballot initiatives that um, may get to the the polls in November. One of them, marijuana. One of them's medical medical marijuana. One of them is voter ID. You know this. There's there's been uh, voter initiatives that have passed like all over the political spectrum in Nebraska in the last ten yeah. years, from gambling, Medicaid expansion, a, a minimum wage going up, the death, keeping the death penalty. There's as a political scientist, you can't really say, okay, voters are overwhelmingly approving ballot measures that are partisan in one way or the other. And the thought is, from all the people that I talk to. Medical marijuana, if it gets on the ballot, it's going to pass, right? And how do you reconcile <laughs> those two things that it seems like? Is it just that the people are coming out to vote in Lincoln and Omaha um, for some of these things? How do you reconcile those two sort of, I think, contrasting ideas about what we see here? Well, when you take party, when you take party labels off the ballot, Nebraska voters are more progressive than people may otherwise believe them to be. So they're not like super left-leaning that's why you're seeing on ballot initiatives you'll see some right-wing stuff passed i I believe there was a um something about gay marriage in our constitution like in the early 2000s that that also passed before it became nationwide and that was that would have been a right-wing victory so the state um if you look at ballot initiatives it's, it's much more mixed and that's because you're asking people to vote on an individual topic not tied to an r or a d i think that's why you would see um more support for something like expansion of medicaid but then if a Democrat runs on those same issues, statewide at least, they usually get trounced. And that's bringing that, that nationalization perception, the, the baggage that the parties bring. And when you have the baggage of the parties in Nebraska, it tends to hinder Democrats. But if you can do it on a ballot initiative, you can get around that a little bit and get some progressive legislation passed that you wouldn't otherwise. Imagine if, if, if you had a Nebraska voter that we defined, by the way, that uh, just a single voter that was defined in the way these ballot initiatives go. You'd have a pro-death penalty, anti-gay marriage, pro-medical marijuana, pro-gambling, uh, pro-Medicaid expansion, pro-minimum wage expansion. It's crazy. 
And there's no political party that that falls into. I don't know what I wouldn't know how to place that anywhere on the yeah. spectrum. It's not libertarian. It's not. It's not. It's not at the Green Party or anything. It's not the Green Party. It's nothing. That's fascinating to me. Like, and I'm sure it's got something to do with the, the various campaigns, and I'm sure it's got something to do with voter turnout that goes along with it. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if in November, Ross, you do have a victory. Medical marijuana can get on the ballot, and maybe a victory for voter ID the same way. Yes. So, <laughs> like, you can't apply the, politi- the current political, the, the traditional political spectrum to this voters when they vote on ballot initiatives. Well, what's tough with, with, with parties is, let's say someone is a very uh, strong uh, supporter of public education or they're a very strong supporter of abortion rights. They may lean Democratic for that one reason, but like the way the Democratic Party or the Republican Party feels on the other 5,000 issues is, is kind of artificially related to that. Like there's no clear link between like... Um, being, you know, in favor of funding public education and, and being uh, against, um, uh, you know, selling automatic weapons or something like that. Now, these are all separate issues that we have been um, conditioned to believe that they are linked together because all the, the parties have to choose on a binary choice on each of those. Republicans are one way, the Democrats are another. But people in their real lives don't go with their own party 100 percent of the time. They're forced to when those are the only two choices. But a ballot initiative gives you much more latitude to choose other things that your party wouldn't be into. The other thing that you've written about, which I think is interesting, is the way that you describe policy and almost marketing terms that go along with it. So Obamacare versus a health care policy that you're describing, the Green New Deal versus, you know, environmental laws, uh, you know, MAGA, all, all, all of these things. And I think I think what you kind of theorized in some of your writing is that when you strip away the marketing terms, the the terms that that uh, national media is using, people tend to view it a little bit differently. Yeah, there's a lot more nuance if you can put it to them in a in a paragraph without um, a sensationalistic label. Definitely. Yeah, that. The, it's just too expensive though to do everything on a ballot initiative. So, so did the people change, or did the marketing of politics change? Uh, probably a little bit of both. I do. I do think the Nebraskans are a little more right leaning than they were back in the '90s when they were electing those those Democrats. Part of that's due to um, the states had a significant brain drain, and those young people coming out of college tend to lean left more than the general Nebraska population. But um, the marketing has definitely gotten much more aggressive. Mm-hmm. Did, I, I'm trying to remember. You mentioned that ballot initiative in in 2000. I was in law school then, the the gay marriage one. But I'm trying to think: Did culture wars exist, or did they exist in a completely different way 20, 25 years ago when when we were younger? I mean, what did the, what I get did the sense that they then? still existed? But I just I, I don't think people were as um, cutthroat about it. They, uh, or maybe didn't. Talk about it, it wasn't such a forefront of discussion. Well, we also know. weren't all glued to our phones and being phones. having our minds warped by our Twitter feed that gives the person. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the normal person doesn't talk about these things as much as like people online talk about them online. Right. Yeah. It's I, I'm ex- I'm exhausted of culture wars. I mean, I and, yeah. I, I, because I feel like there's the culture wars are definitely around the late '90s, early 2000s, though. Yeah, I think they were a little different. I mean, they were a little different topics, but. Yeah, but but it almost feels like I don't know. Do you think 
in order, just strategically, like Democrats need to sort of abandon some of that stuff or or change how they talk about it? Because it feels like some of that is unwinnable, and there's a lot of people who theorize, I think to some degree maybe you have as well, uh, just overemphasis on some of those huge cultural war issues, those most division cultural war issues, is is costing um, uh, uh, Democrats or people more left leaning when they probably could and should be doing better in in some parts of the country. Yeah, I, I do think in states like Nebraska, it makes sense to talk about those things less and make them a, a less of a part of your campaign. You know how the Democratic Party feels about a particular culture war issue. But what's difficult for those candidates is even if they aren't running on a, a pro-choice platform or a gun control platform, they're probably going to get sucked into that at some point by their opponent. True. Like, I don't know how you completely avoid it, even if you aren't running on it. And that's not how you're trying to reach people. It's there and it's nationalized and outside moneyed groups as well as the Republican Party are going to drag that issue up if they think it's going to help them win the race. Yeah, I mean, a good example of that is we just had a, a primary in Nebraska and the commercials for the Republican candidates for government were about, I mean, immigration, gun control, um, public schools and sex education. Uh, I don't know that I saw a campaign commercial about property tax reform which probably deep down is the thing that's most impactful to the voters. And it's the uh, thing that they spend the most time on in most legislative sessions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, like since the eighties, like property well, tax always comes up every, every year since the Heinemann era, the beginning of the Heinemann era, Ross, that were, we got to figure out this issue. We got, you know, we got rural land. Oh, even before the Heinemann era, they, they commissioned that Syracuse study way back then. And it was, but it every was all, year, but every year yeah. it feels like nothing happens. And people are upset about it, and then we've got, you know, but then... Uh, the, but then we got to talk about furries in classrooms. Nobody's... Yeah, we're talking about fur- <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's, it, it, it's man, it, it's sad in a way. I mean, people can be where they want to, but I have found that discussing policy with people um, that I agree or disagree with now is so... It's so I mean, we still have, we have these labels, conservative and liberal, uh, and I was a poli-sci major, and I don't think they mean anything anymore. Uh, you know, we, you know, you talk about, for instance, you know, Donald Trump. Okay, he was a he was a stand-up conservative. Well, he was one of the least. I mean, if you really want to talk about conservatism, he's one of the least. Yes, he certainly had conservative positions on immigration. He certainly did things that were on that side when it comes to some other issues. But in terms of government philosophy he did not have any sort of an inner drive for small government by any means or yeah or i don't see him uh talking about tocqueville or, or edmund burke or right we're i mean when, when, <laughs> reading the national review when we're talking when we're talking about these things from a political science standpoint we're talking about federal power versus state power right we're talking about those sorts of things and and limited federal government and the the, the roles but then on the the same side we've got you know, you've got uh, uh, Republicans who are talking about who are talking about having the federal government regulate private social media companies, which is, I mean, it is that is completely, completely on the left side of of the spectrum. Well, and then the trade wars, uh, the, the Republicans were the party of globalization and free trade for for many years, uh, at least since Reagan, and that's com- that's reversed. You know, with these protectionism policies, the the nationalistic 
economic view. That's a complete flip from Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things. There are, are, are a lot of things, but we still use these same words that are supposed to point to a philosophy on on a country's government, on federal government, the proper role of federal yeah. government, which I think is a good and interesting well, conversation. Yeah, I see a lot of liberals wanting to restrict free speech in pretty significant exactly. ways, too. So. Yeah. Yeah, like I, when I was in Brainerd, Nebraska, the people I irritated the most with my offensive songs were uh, very conservative Christians, right. and now it's uh, people wanting safe spaces who I irritate in New York who are way to the left of me. Right. The left wants safe spaces, and the right wants to uh, regulate what private companies are are able to. Corporate huge. So that's just a lot different than what I experienced in Brainerd, because in Brainerd, like the few people were liberal, it was like you say anything. Right. And, uh, I know. It's you know, very on. very. It's, Churchy people were the ones who got uptight about stuff. It is flipped on its head in 20 years in, in, in a lot of ways. Not everything, but in a lot of ways. Um, let, let me ask you one more thing about, do, do you think sort of the, the complete inability of Democrats and, I mean, Democrats didn't even run for statewide offices in a lot of spots in Nebraska. You know, you're yeah, the Libertarian Party had more candidates in some of those down ballot races. Is is this a is this a, a a failure of strategy or is it just the political reality right now that they have been so unsuccessful probably in other states too but I pay most attention to Nebraska when it comes to the statewide stuff I think it's a failure in strategy but it goes back like so many years like you can't just throw in a secretary of state candidate and a, a sure. treasury candidate and expect to win now after what's happened like I mean I think it's been been a failure for for like many years before the people who are even running the party now were in office or, or in these positions. And what, what was that failure, especially in the rural areas? Do you think to not invest the way that the Republicans are investing? Republicans cared about local government. Like they, uh, you criticize the Koch brothers, but they, knew the importance of local government in getting their uh, agenda realized. Democrats are kind of asleep there for, for years in many parts of the country. And now they're paying the price and they're way behind. Mm-hmm. And it, and for some reason too, they always end up with some of the weirdest candidates too. I mean like, Oh yeah. Like Jim like, and yes, that, uh, that guy from the third district was like a big weed dude, but yes. got into uh, well, some Mark, spat. I mean, I can go way back. Mark Lakers, you know, he was in and then he was out of this whole thing. It the attorney like, general candidate who strangled his old dad and was yes. forced to drop out. Yeah, the, it feels like they're working with the sixth string when it comes to the candidates because I don't yeah. think anybody else wants to go up and lose. I think that's part of it. It is definitely part of it. I mean, you're facing a, a tough challenge there. I, I remember I did an interview um, for the book with uh, Kim Roback, yeah. who was uh, lieutenant governor um, way back in the day with, with she, Ben Nelson. Way, she read the proclamation when Nebraska won the national championship after the 1994 season, the Bob DeVos <laughs> awesome. Center. I was there. <laughs> was that when she was a university official? No, she was. She, she was. Oh, that was when she was a lieutenant governor. Was Nelson's lieutenant governor. Nelson. Because she worked for the university too. Then, yeah. Yeah. Well, so anyway, she's a very, very qualified candidate. And um, they were trying to get her to run. Um, I believe this is for Senate. It might have been the time Bob Kerry ran. can't remember which year it was. This is a year, let's That's say right. 10 years ago, trying to get her to run for Senate. And she seriously thought about it, but then just thought about the likelihood of winning and how much more money she'd have to raise in the Republicans to overcome that deficit and didn't see a path there. 
And so then didn't run. But if she happened to be a Republican, she would have had a clear path and she'd probably, you know, be our governor or her U.S. senator or yeah, something. Like that's true. It's, it's just so much more you're asking of those people and uh, many reasonable people like her decide I don't want to be part yeah. of that. Well, and it's interesting you bring up that race because Bob Kerry didn't end up winning, uh, end up being the Democratic nominee that year, went up against Deb Fisher, who kind of surprisingly won that primary at the time. That was crazy in its own right, that whole Republican primary. But like the ref, the referendum on Bob Kerry's popularity from the 80s to the, the 80s and the early 90s to the, the 2010s uh, couldn't be more stark. I mean, it's just kind of a microcosm of what you're talking about. Yeah, and he was tagged as a carpetbagger, this, this guy who grew up in Lincoln, went to UNL, was a war hero, a governor, U.S. senator, moves to New York for a few years, and suddenly he's not one of us, and enough people believe that. Yeah. Maybe that's what they say about me now. I'm a carpetbagger. No, well, I was just, that's interesting. I was just going to read one of your, you said this, you wrote this in one of your pieces. I'm moderately conservative, still identify as a Catholic and have yet to vote for a Democratic president. I don't know if that's still true, but. Oh, that, yeah, that's that? not, that, w- that was true until this last time. Okay. Well, actually, I no, I, I, it was true. I, I'm writing that as, as like in regards to that chapter, like when that's taking place. Okay, I, but by the time I published Rural Rebellion, I'd voted for Clinton. Okay, and I mentioned that too later in the book. That, so you were, you were, you were. That was when you were talking about. That's what I was, I was at UNL. When yeah, you I was at like college. Yeah, which exactly? Which by the okay, so that was interesting. Some of the stuff you wrote about. I'd say I went from moderately conservative to moderately liberal during those. So that's times. where you are right now, moderately. Yeah, liberal. yeah. Like I, I, I voted for Biden. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, you, I don't have a I don't have a sign in my yard, but you know that's. <laughs> I'm never that's that's one of the weirdest things to me about politics today. I can't I don't think I'll ever wear a t-shirt for a candidate in my life. I yeah. don't I don't get like I don't get the and, and and it's let's be honest, it's particularly happening with Trump. Um but it probably happens other places too. But I man, I just have a hard time. I have a really hard time like kind of deifying politicians in particular that seems to be less the case now than it used to be yeah i mean more, well uh, i think it's the, the people who do deify them are very vocal i'm not sure that they like have grown in numbers but they become more vocal yeah maybe that's it but boy when you think someone's perfect right if you believe that somebody's perfect it become well i think we're probably seeing it right now what's happening to that when you believe that somebody's perfect they can do no wrong which i don't believe that about any politician i think the vast majority of them have all kinds of flaws and and problems that go along with it. It becomes very hard to evaluate. Yeah, like them. I voted for Biden, and I could tell you, like our Afghanistan pullout was not good. You correct. know, <laughs> yeah, like, correct. The, the the economy is not. You know, is it complex? Yes, but the economy is in the shitter. I mean, yeah, there, there's response. There's responsibility there. Something is there. I can say that, right? I but I don't know that it feels like nobody else can it around me and again i'm amplifying a small group and i think you're right but so few people say things like that anymore that it makes a conversation impossible yeah about almost anything yeah Uh, i want to i want to so the area that i was pulling that out i thought this was really interesting um you talked you talked in some of your writing about about your faith and and how it was i think this was in one of your articles about dinesh d'souza and reading his book and yeah that and that sort of thing um, but I'm, I'm sort of curious about that journey, especially like you were in college being brought up Catholic, going through 
what you did with that and how that's all kind of played out over the years as you've gotten older? Well, I did just go to mass this Sunday, but um, my wife wanted to go. So uh, <laughs> so there's the uh, caveat. That's something. But, but I didn't have to go and I, I went. So I, I, I have some uh, mixed feelings about it because they're in college too i met so many great people through the church like like i would go to newman center events and i um have a lot of friends who are very catholic my best friend who um was a groomsman in my wedding best man in my wedding uh his name's tom he's a big fan of yours by the way uh jack uh he's excited that i'm on this podcast uh we were always talking about uh faith stuff um and, and like exchanging books by catholic theologians um I still read stuff like uh, National Catholic Reporter, National Catholic Register, Commonweal, CNA all the time. But I, I've um, just felt oh, so. That sounds terrible, by the way. I'm a Protestant, though, so sorry. Okay, yeah. No offense. But I, I just don't believe the way I used to believe. And I, I feel like there's so many things that um, the, the people who were religious leaders in, in Lincoln when I was um, had my formative years would take positions not because it was the Catholic one, but because it was the conservative one. And they would believe more in the Republican orthodoxy than they did in the Catholic orthodoxy. And I, I didn't see that as much un until um, I got older and explored other things. I, I know that might seem kind of patronizing, but just stuff like no. saying the church never changes. And then you realize how many policies it has changed on, you know, that, that kind of sours your faith or the reasons why they may be against, you know, gay marriage and you find them to be pretty arbitrary when the same theologians would say crazy the same theologians they're basing these principles on would say all sorts of crazy things that have been um like scientifically disproven mm. um you know so it, it's been a hard journey um i it would have been easier if i just kept the faith and felt super gung-ho about it and um but i i just feel very conflicted. You know, my, my favorite priest who I was a, a good, good friends with, um, Lincoln diocese, um, uh, became defrocked. Like he's no lay size. He's no longer a priest. And I didn't find out why until he wrote an article about it for the American conservative, like 15 years later, you know, those, those uh, sorts of things kind of, uh, bum me out. And just the overall folk, just the intense focus on abortion at the expense of all other issues. You know, I wish I, I heard more about the good of um, public institutions like education, more about um, the plight of immigrants, because those all are uh, Catholic social teachings, you know, Francis will say, but in, but in Nebraska, um, going to church, man, there's a lot of stuff against gay marriage and abortion. And you, you didn't hear as much of the, when I say social justice, I mean like 1960s, like peace war activist, social justice, not today's like, uh, Mm -hmm. social media person who just wants to right. correct a word that you use well, i mean traditional social justice is what i cared about and the church has been great about they 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 fund aids programs all over the world they do a lot of good work but you, you tend to hear more about this like very right driven culture war stuff in nebraska and that drove me away well the way that the word you know in the english translation in the bible justice i mean that it, it's i mean it's translated from 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 Greek and uh, and words that really refer to what we think of as or what you were referring to as social justice. I mean, yeah, th those are the things that it that it's talking about when you you go back. And I've had, uh, and, and I'll tell you what, I've had the same. Um, I'm the son of a pastor, um, um, and and my dad passed away about seven years ago. Um, but it was in um in a Protestant church, and and 
um, I have had I've had a lot of thoughts about trying to my faith and for me kind of the American church and do they have to be interwoven can one Mm -hmm. because I feel like I still believe what I did all along but I feel differently about the church right now which I would suppose when you're Catholic is even a little bit of a bigger deal because you know the church itself is more interwoven sort of into the into the well I don't want to speak for for Catholics exactly but you I think I know you know what I'm saying right well it's more interwoven I mean the Supreme Court is like all not all but a lot of the Supreme Court justices are are Catholic and if like Roe gets overturned it'll be due to Catholic uh, Supreme Court justices um, you know that that has more influence than a most other denominations part of it's just due to the massive size like a fourth of all American Christians are Catholic right there's no other right denomination I, I, but I guess what I mean, what I guess what I mean is if I wanted to, I could bounce around to a couple of different, you know. Oh yeah, I could do that, but, I, churches, I, I, but it just doesn't feel the same. Uh, I, I, I mean, it does. It's 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 a little bit different with Catholicism, right? You don't have people going down 84th Street and going to the other churches, right? On 84th <laughs> Street, until you can kind of find one that you like a little bit more. That's not as much of a thing, right? There's. I, I don't think that's as much of a. Th- I mean, you might go to a different, um, like parish, but I don't think there's as much denomination hopping. Yeah. And I tried that a little bit um, when I was um, dating a very uh, Christian girl uh, at UNL, and I, I just didn't find the other experiences. And I very, I, they're all all over the place: mainline Protestants, evangelical, non-denominational. I, didn't, I just didn't find them as, as uh, captivating. Because there, there is still a lot about the like the um, the rituals and the liturgy. And uh, just the format of uh, Catholic worship services that I do find reassuring, which is due to experiencing it tens of thousands of times throughout my life. You know, I'm, I'm accustomed to it. Tradition. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that everyone makes- in my family is, well, not, a few of them have converted, but like we traditionally uh, are, are Catholics, descendants of Catholics uh, from Czechoslovakia uh, on through uh, my cousins and stuff to today. Uh, it, it, it's tough though, because I also think they, it wasn't all negative, you know, not, not just the experiences with people, but the, the outlook on not being selfish, you know, I'm still selfish, but I think I'm probably less selfish than I would be if I didn't have the church experience. And so I try to try to cherish that and think about the good that's done in my life. But I think politically in this country, it's harmful right now. Yeah. The, the the one of the things that's come up in this gun control debate is an interesting argument, and you'll hear it quite a bit. Is that well, what the country needs is not more laws; they need more God. <laughs> and and oh yeah, more relativism would be blamed. That was another thing that turned me off. Was you you would hear these these sermons about the evil in our world, the moral relativism, all these problems. You would think everyone has uh, ten different STDs the way they're talking, and then you find out we're in the uh, like when, when I was hearing these sermons, uh, you look at the data and you're like, oh, the crime actually peaked 15 years ago. Kids are having less sex today than they did today. Why are we having these moral panics? What are you even talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you wrote about this in in one of your pieces, too, where it was it was the D'Souza one, probably, where you, you kind of talked about like, OK, well, there's just this other there there's this other world, sort of this evil world out there that doesn't really exist in some at least the way that it was described 
to you and has been described? Yeah, I think think they're just um, there's this like us versus them mindset. We're the like kind of counterculture. We embrace the the good values. The rest of the world is out to get us. But then if you scope out, you realize no one's really looking to discriminate against Christians in Nebraska where they're they're the majority. Like some of this just kind of seems nonsensical. And about the D'Souza thing for context for the listeners. Um, when I was going through a, a crisis of faith, I was recommended a book by Dinesh D'Souza in a, a confessional. And what made it um, so frustrating wasn't uh, reading Dinesh D'Souza's book necessarily. It, it, you know, you, I don't really care for that individual. And he's just some guy. It's that, you know, this awesome priest who I really trusted found that to be the worldview to recommend. That's what was more troubling to me. That you know, it, it didn't seem to match up with the things you thought he was conveying to you right yeah yeah like, like you know if it's like a humble theology book that would be like one thing but if it's like all right you know you're looking for purpose like go read this right-wing propaganda and then you go and you then i, I didn't know who dinesh Souza was and i read it and i'm like what the hell was that mm-hmm. you know but that's it i mean in some ways that's that's a shared experience too because you've got that i've got because you like you said, there are these these good things, these things that you believe are are right that match up that you believe with, and you think the same guy who recommended it would do anything for right. his parishioners. Right, you think you're on the same page with them. I mean, it's like going through my Facebook feed. Sometimes I read it and I'm like, I don't want to know that you think this. I'm actually, <laughs> I, I I I if I unfollow people, I quit hearing what they say. Weirdly, it's because I want to like them. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to know what they. I don't want to know these. And somehow those things never came out in the entirety of our life up to that point till I started reading their Facebook posts. Isn't that bizarre about the way that we relate to people now? I think everybody's probably got stories like that. It is bizarre, but it's uh, unfortunately for people coming up now, it's probably going to be the way they think is normal. Yeah. Like we we talk about things because this tech thing prompted us to it, it prompted us at the most divisive thing you know prompted us to talk about the most divisive thing in binary terms whereas if you know you're communicating with communicating with that guy um you probably uh talked to him about why bad calls actually matter that's probably most of your conversation right, right. <laughs> it, but that's just crazy well that it's sad that old chicago closed in the haymarket you it know is. like just, i'm still i had my 21st birthday there on august 7th 1998 uh amazing night uh i am very sad about that but yeah you, it, it, it's exactly true i'm just sort of realizing it as i i talk about it but in in that social media era there are people who i've had decades of personal relationships with that i didn't have ever really no, there are some where maybe I did, but I really didn't have that level of turn-offedness that I did with them when I saw their thoughts on social media. And I have seen like uh, you know guys who coach me in baseball who I love, who I just talked to at my wedding a few weeks ago in rural Nebraska, and like they're getting like into fights on Facebook with what I think is probably a bot, like it's not even a real person, and they're just both saying crazy things at each other. It's like what's happening? The other this. I know this guy to be a really rational, good person. And if I saw him on the street, we'll have a great conversation. But he's uh, screaming about some Biden thing with a account that has three followers. Yeah. How did you get in, uh, so into writing about sex? <laughs> well, I like to say that, um, you know, sex is a passion of mine. 
God. Bold statement. Bold. Wow, I can't find many people who feel that way, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> so there were a lot of things I was doing at the time that were, were sexual. My band was, was pretty sexual. The, those articles were pretty sexual. The book ended up being pretty sexual. But in college, when I started working on that book after the breakup, I was really influenced by Freakonomics. And I just set out to like write a bunch of nonfiction essays that would have some sort of counterintuitive take. And maybe this is, says something about me more in a Freudian way that like, 80% of them were about sex. You know, some of them were about like statistics or sports or something. But after I had about seven essays and I realized all but like one or two of them were about sex, I, I thought, well, a book needs a cohesive theme. Why don't I just delete the other stuff and make it a sex book? And, sex and only. presumably sex sells. So that will give it a better chance to sell with right. marketers. And then once I had that book, I would write about it otherwise in a way to like promote the book. But then after that, then I switched to Nebraska politics. Now I'm working on a book about pro wrestling and Jerry Springer. Sure. <laughs> really? Which is just natural, you know? It's the natural Yeah, I am working on that. It's phase yep. one, sex. Phase two, politics. Phase three, pro wrestling, Jerry Springer. Very good. That's, are you, what's that book going to be? Give me a preview. Um, well, I, I just starting to, uh, I just got a, a new, uh, I'm just getting a new agent now and we haven't started going to publishers yet. So it's still a little, um, not coherently put together, but just the premise is that um, a lot of low culture from the 90s became very influential in our world today. And I love stuff like the Insane Clown Posse and Jerry Springer and pro wrestling and Beanie Baby Madness that I wanted to write a book about it because I just love talking about those things and watching them and playing with the toys and stuff. So it's sort of going to be a fun project. When I was in college in Northwest Iowa, we didn't have cable in our dorm rooms. We had rabbit ears. And they would, after, at about 11 o'clock, they would start playing Jerry Springer on the Fox affiliate near, near Sioux City. And we would all get together and we'd watch that thing and, you know, start chanting Jerry and then wait for Steve to come in and break up the fight oh, yeah. and everything Steve like that. Steve is awesome. And then he got his own show, didn't he, for a while? Yeah, Steve Wilkos got his own show. I, I used to watch the Jerry Springer show with my parents. Oh my gosh, man! I want to have your. Parents. One thing I loved about them is, you know, even though they're very um, involved with the church and 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 um, you know, old fashioned in some ways, they did not care at all about the pop culture I consumed. Like I was like nine years old, like playing Grand Theft Auto. I was like seven years old, listening to Easy E, mostly because of my brother's influence. And they were just done being parents because I was. They were. I was a mistake. They were like forty when they had me, you know? I was like, they wanted to be done and then now it comes a Ross. And so if I wanted to watch Jerry Springer, they're just like, sure. You know? We'll you all mellow. watch it. You mellow as a pa- yeah, if I had a baby now, because I've got a seventeen year old and eleven year old and my sister's would- seventeen years older than me. So Okay, so it'd be like it'd be just like if I had a baby now. Yeah, exactly. And then by that t- by the time that kid's like, you know, ten, you're just like whatever. Right. You know, right. if you want to watch it out of the it. womb, uh, out of the on the in the delivery room, I'm handing them their iPhone. I'm like, all right, <laughs> get going on that thing. No, but 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 back to the back to the the sex things. One of the, one of the things that you talked about, and I haven't read a whole lot of your stuff on this, but um, one of the things you said is debunking common myths and attitudes about sex can help us better understand what really influences human behavior as we grapple with 
effect sexuality kind of has on the world with uh, without us. I mean, I realize that's the whole book, but like, give me an example of that. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, so an example, and we can tie this to church that we've been talking about. When I was um, like in the uh, going to all these uh, masses and stuff, you would hear divorce is fifty percent and climbing, and it's because we're in a godless society. You know, everything's evil. Um, couples don't care. They're selfish now. Everything's gone to hell now. You'd hear that. Well, if you look at the data, you'd see divorce rates never actually got up to 50%. And they peaked in like the early 90s, actually in the late 80s, most likely. Um, and that's they, the reason they went up so high is because the laws were changed. No fault divorce became legal in more states. And then more women began working and weren't dependent on terrible men who they were formerly dependent on and divorce rates immediately skyrocketed after some of these laws were in place because there are a backload of people who wanted to get divorced who had legal um, roadblocks in front of them and then they came down and they're still ha- probably higher than we would like them to be as a society but the like data analysis of actual divorce uh, statistics would tell you that the world isn't as much fire and brimstone as those preachers would have you believe. And there's a ton of other examples that are just like that. I was a divorce divorce lawyer for four years, primarily a divorce lawyer. That job sucks. And I wasn't making a lot of money. It's probably better if you're making a lot of money. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, that that's why I'm in radio right now. That didn't work out. So yeah. it didn't work out for my for my own mental stability. By the way, um, can you please uh, can you please tell Rob Harvilla that I stan him, please, uh, if possible? Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll mention that next time I'm trying to, to pitch him something. Say, oh, oh, this just, other guy, this radio guy, I know. Uh, I just clicked on your Twitter link, and the first it says, shows the common people that people you follow that you know, and his name was the first one that came up, and and I will unabashedly promote another podcast on on my podcast, his sixty songs that explain the '90s, which is now ninety songs that explain the '90s. Probably my favorite podcast ever. Probably. Yeah, Rob's awesome. He was a. I haven't listened to the podcast. I know that it's funny because, you know, I I know people uh, from work that, uh, from like my work life that have really popular podcasts. And for my e marketer job, I cover podcast advertising and I just did a, a presentation with Spotify on podcasts. But I actually don't listen to that many podcasts. Really? And I appear on them all the time. Yeah. Really? What do you listen to? I, I listen to music mostly. I, like, if I'm at my desk, I, I just tend to find music, even if it's stuff I've heard a lot. I'm stereotyping the crap out of you, but I can't believe you're not a bigger podcast guy. Yeah, you would think I am, given my interest and in the number of appearances I do on them. But uh, <laughs> I, I often... Um, don't listen to them unless there's something I really specifically want to listen to. Like if uh, maybe something happened with Husker football right. or um, or I'm doing research right now, like for this 90s book. Like I just listened to uh, a few interviews that Violent J of Insane Clown Posse has done in the last few years. You're, you're, you're researching Juggalos. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm very fascinated by Juggalos. I, I think the Insane Clown Posse has gotten more out of their talent. Not that they had a ton of talent, but they got more out of it and possibly any other music group in U.S. history, because they're still here. They're still making money. They never had a large following, but they got those few thousand people that are really into them, and they just sell the hell out of it. And I think that's something to admire. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. 
Just get. You gotta find your real. juggalos. Small, my juggle. My, your jackalos. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's that's really interesting, though, about that. The the crazy thing is now I, um, the way that I used to sort of be with media members, lo- local media. I did this with local media members when I wasn't in the media, where I was, and, and I, like, I'm not trying to be self-aggrandizing, but I can see how people, you know, when they interact with you, there, there's just this fascination with you and this interest in you, and. And I'm not really in that position anymore with that group of people. But for me, that has turned into the host of the podcast that I listen to. Like I'm, I'll, I'll, if you, if you watch me on Twitter, like I'll be, I'll tweet little messages to, you know, the people that, like I listen to the entire Yacht Rock podcast, like four years of it. I, and I just totally took it and Rob Harvilla and all, and, and these other ones. And all case you just type something to them like, let's see if they like this. Like, I, I will dork out over that stuff now uh, in a way that I didn't yeah. in the past. So it's kind of fun. Um, okay, we're uh, we're a little short on time here. I'm going to get you on again sometime down the road. I want to get into more of the marketing stuff that you do. That's fascinating, too. But I really want to know. I'd, it, I'd love to come back, and, you know, I'll have a new book again one day. So. Yeah, let me know. Let me know, because I'm going to get in. I mean, man, I know some of the stuff you've done regarding Netflix and, and marketing, and commer- I mean, all over the place would be great to get into, but let's save a, a time for a full discussion. What I really want to know is what is it like following Husker football in New York City? Well, the good news is that it's easier to ignore it if you have to ignore it. Like, you're not surrounded by it, and if we just had the most inexplicable, explicable loss to Minnesota, like, you can just escape from the world, hike a mountain, and no one else even seems to be aware that we just had a a shitty ass game nice. against Minnesota. That would be nice. Um, so that that's what it's like for me is I can escape it a little more, but I still have my little group of, of people. They're mostly um they're they're more like closer to your age. They're like um mid late forties guys who are from rural Nebraska who came to New York before I did and I, I got in with their group and we watch games together. But the last few years uh, there's been more games that I try to try to get outside the city. And, and like hike and stuff. And I follow it on my phone because I know it's going to be bad. And then I watch the replay if like there's some good moments, but I have to separate myself a little bit because my stress levels are too high last year. Sad. Ulcerative colitis. Oh, sad. Yeah. It's sad that we've, I, I still, I'm still like, I'm still really in it. But if I was in Lincoln, I wouldn't be able to like skip watching a game live right. here. I, I, I no. do that. More and I've been doing it more over time as we've gotten worse. I get it. I'd probably be there too in some case because some days you're like, I can't do this again. I can't do. I mean, I I was doing that five years ago. I can't do the pain again. But God, I just, the pain this year was really intense. It was so bad. It was so bad. And and I've got a I've got a 17 year old. I told you and um, it was this was really telling after Nebraska beat Wisconsin in basketball. Nebraska beat Wisconsin at the end of the regular season in a basically meaningless game, but it was a big upset, and they knocked off Wisconsin. Everybody disliked, and Brad Davison was at Wisconsin. They beat him, and he said, "Dad, I think that's one of the top three sports moments in my life." Dang! And I said, oh my gosh! Oh, and I was like, "What's number one?" And he was like, "Probably the Jordan Wester Camp Hail Mary." And I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> you know, BTN did a documentary on that, and. It's not even something to be really proud of because it was like not a great Northwestern team that outplayed us and we got lucky as hell to beat them. I was, and he's like, he, he it wasn't Ohio State, it was Northwestern. 
He was always he was like, I don't really have any other friends that are Husker fans, which is crazy because you know you live I, in Lincoln. I graduated in '96, so can you imagine the timing for all that? I graduated high school in '96. Yeah, I went that's lucky. The glory years, but it was a communal event for everyone. I had a party. I'll post a video of it. There's some video that, that's out there. I had a party in my basement with like 80 kids, uh, guys, girls, all of everybody turned it, tuned into the game. It's like you can't you can't imagine it whatsoever now. But the only the only one thing that is still unique about it. I don't know if you've experienced this, but. There are, and I'm sure you've got people that you knew from back in Brainerd that you you probably maybe would have grown apart from in a lot of other ways. I've got those people that are friends of mine. We're different now. We're all over the country, but my goodness, we still have a text thread about yeah. about Husker games. And that's it, how I stay in touch with a lot of my high school it will friends. Always bring us back together, and it's so nice to have that one thing in my life that no matter how far away, no matter how different are we are in other things, no matter how our lives have become disconnected. That's still the same. It's the only thing that that completely didn't change. And it's nice, like I come back, I haven't seen someone. Might might be a few years. I run into them at Husker Bar, and it might be kind of awkward at first because they don't know what I'm up to. Like I haven't seen anything what they're up to. Right, and sex books, a lot of sex. Yeah. books. <laughs> and just you know, we can immediately just be like, so what do you think of that Thompson? You know, yeah, like yeah, think yeah. he's going to be the guy, you know, you can just launch right into that and it removes all the friction and suddenly you're, you're schmoozing again. No matter what happens, good or bad, that stability is something that I, stability. I wish there was more good though. Yeah, no, no. I'm just saying that like, and, and baseball like too. I thought, I thought we turned the corner last year and, and then this year, you know, I'm watching NET on my phone and seeing us like lose to Creighton after making like five errors and having runners in scoring position every other inning, uh, it's just the uh, you need to uh, you need to go up to uh, to Rutgers and go watch Nebraska on a Friday night this year. How so far I, I, I probably will do. That. I did go to Rutgers um, last time they were here. It was um, December COVID year. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. so they no one could allow. And then the other time uh, was it twenty. 14 or 15 i did go once and i've gone to piscataway twice it's it's about probably about an hour and a half to two hours depending on which trains i take as i live i live actually north of the city um in the hudson valley now and uh i've gone to piscataway for three events one husker football game in the rally era which we won and then i went to two tim miles basketball games that we were supposed to win and we <laughs> pissed it down our legs and you know you waste the whole day going out there and Rutgers wasn't good this is before Ron Harper Jr. Yeah. And we had a good team it's like we had Copeland and those guys mm-hmm. and we lose then and it was just a bummer so okay, this Yeah, year- I do go out there and this Friday uh, I think it's in October. Yeah, um, so Friday night to you know just stay overnight, make a make a weekend of it. Yeah, we'll go for, I'm sure we'll have tons of people listening. Uh, who are going to be going down to that game? Meet up with uh, meet up with them in your group and make a night of it. And yeah, I will. Let's and you celebrate know, it's, in person for once. It, it's huh? Rutgers, so you know we we should have a chance to win that game. But I said that a lot last year too. I'm not even letting myself. I'm I'm, I'm trying. I'm doing the work not to. Noah Vedral will throw for five touchdowns on us. <laughs> I'm doing everything I can to not allow myself to have expectations because the pain might be somewhat less then. You know, I, I, we're I do looking- pain management. That's how I watch sports now. Pain <laughs> management is all. I you do. keep like Vicodin near your desk. I, I do. I try to emotionally manipulate myself to have less hurt after yeah. the fact. So, I'm but the fact here. that it still hurts though means that I haven't. Even though I live here for all these years, 
And like most of my friends and my wife don't care at all about the Huskers. He still can't escape it. And I wonder if I want to pass that on to our children when we have them or if that's just cruel. I know. I know. That's sad. I know. (laughs) Parents of our age have have uh, been asking that question for a while now. Hey, uh, I'm going to let you go, Ross. You can uh, get going again. Thanks a ton for doing this. Uh, you can get uh, check out the books. I know you have a, a, a website, just kind of a personal website. That's uh, just rossbenish.com. Yep, rossbenish.com. Um, yeah. Check out Rural Rebellion. I've been saying your last name the whole, wrong the whole time. I, I didn't want to say anything. I was going to ask you at the outset. That's okay. It's Benish. Because I know I did ask you the first time I did this, and I did that thing where i tried to remember so i didn't ask you again so my <laughs> that's okay no there. worries rossbenish.com um and check that out you can get the the link to the amazon books and and read some of those clips that we were talking about today uh no but thanks a lot i really enjoyed this man i could talk forever to you and uh hopefully we'll do it again sometime yeah, i'd love to I, I love talking with someone who is as nutty about husker football as i am absolutely all right there you go ross benish we'll be back next week with another jack mitchell podcast until that time We'll see you later.